again from the you can't make this up department there's no other religion where the god that they worship is called a friend of people but jesus is indeed so the lord consecrates us he also feeds us as his people on the way to heaven and all of romans chapter 12 and verses 1 through 21 beginning next week uh, God willing, I want to begin preaching through the book of Esther, but we'll, uh, you won't have the scripture here. You'll be using your, your blue uh, Bibles, and you'll be using them for the message today, too. Romans 12, beginning at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as, now note this, a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world push you into its mold, but be transformed, be metamorphosed, is the word, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Note the emphasis on the the mind being renewed. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy and proportion to our faith, if service or if deaconing in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts or could be encouraged, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, literally the one who shares in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but literally be boiling in spirit. Serve or serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality is not what it says. It's literally pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
Congregation, the grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which your response is hallelujah and thanks be to God. I haven't looked at one recently. I think they're still out, but uh, that that ubiquitous series, um, Books for Dummies, and I always... I always uh, enjoyed the ones that I did read. There were at least the ones I remember. There was one about magic when I was going through that phase with our uh, our grandson Ethan. Uh, dummies, uh, magic for dummies, and then word. I remember getting the one word for dummies, and uh, and then oh, even fishing for dummies. Even though I liked fishing, it was kind of fun to be refreshed in all of those things. So the dummies series. One of the reasons why I like the dummy series is because I confess I am one. Most areas in life, I am a dummy, and I will admit it, so a series for dummies is helpful. Um, it, it did really get you into something, which was great in a, in a very simple way, especially with these little reminders of what was most important. That was kind of dummies for dummies in the section. But the other thing is, if you really were interested in it, you, it then it, it helped you to delve into something a little more deeply. So I really did value the series. So the title of the message, Church Life for Dummies. I hope that you are not offended by it. Um, it's Number one, it's me. I uh, Even as a pastor, I've got to remind myself, what do the scriptures say about what church life is? And it's easy to forget that and its magnitude, and it was wonderful to work through large portions of this in the original language um, just to be reminded of what, as a pastor, what is church life for this dummy and, uh, and for you and for those who visit with us. It's so important because this is not programmed into our genes. You have to learn this by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And um, so um, this, I hope, will also help you dig deeper. Um, what I'm going to give you is just some little little, little nuggets of gold, I hope, from this text, and I hope it makes you want to dig even deeper into the gold mine. And actually, the text is, is beyond this. I've looked at Romans 12 and verse 1 through chapter 15 and verse 7, so that really brings you to page 1,126 to 1,128 in your pew Bibles. But why why Romans for this? Why Why Romans? Well, if you want to get a Bachelor of Arts degree in, in, uh, in Doctrine and Life, study the book of Romans because it's just the most comprehensive presentation of the gospel. You begin with God's wrath, with, with justification over against that, our being declared righteous in Christ, what it is to grow in holiness by union with Christ. There's this fascinating section about the way God works with Jews and Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11, uh, which is really designed to make us think about the bigger pictures of God, which brings you to the, to the very end of chapter 11. Oh, the de- depths of the, of the wisdom and the mercy of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, and you're just in awe of the plan of redemption. And then, beginning with chapter 12, Paul gives a very, very comprehensive picture of what it is life to like to live together, to live together in the church. And so that's why I've culled this section for that material. Now, if you don't like the title, uh, Church, church Life for Dummies, um, 
I had a couple of consultants. One was Mary and one was Margaret. They both kind of paused. It's, nah, I guess that's okay for a title. But if you don't like it, here we go. Here's one that will warm your heart as a Calvinist. The five points of life together as a church. How's, how's that? The, the five points of, of life together as a church. And the big overarching point that I want you to see, and you will see it when you read this section, you read it carefully, Church life is not first about us. It's about Christ. It's about showing Christ in every single thing that's done. That's why what I'll do with the the five points of church life will we'll show how, in a real sense, these things represent Christ himself and the various parts of his body as the God-man. Okay, so here we go. Let's put on our seatbelts. There's an awful lot in here, and I probably will just be able to just take the first three points and develop them a bit and then throw out the last two for you to work on yourself. But number one is think about mind, okay? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, what Romans 12 and verse 1. Think about the mind of Christ. And here it is. Stop thinking like an American individualist. I, I toyed with whether to put it like this, but I think hitting us between the eyes at the beginning is the most stop thinking like an American individualist. I'll show you that in the text. It's pretty obvious. But, and I've reflected, and this is kind of a, kind of a uh, P.S. to Strange New World. I, I wonder what really has brought us to this point and, and others have made this observation. You know, your pastor is not that profound. Remember, this is for dummies. But if you go back about three-quarters of a century ago in the 50s, after World War II, the United States was very much a united nation. After that, late 40s, early 50s, and as the 50s, that really began to unravel. And what you saw happening is the breakdown of the family, that affected the breakdown of churches, which necessarily affects the breakdown of the state. And in its place is that kind of rabid individualism, which, which is called expressive individualism, in which, quite frankly, everyone else can jump off a short pier. I'm going to do what I want. And that has really affected the church. So, point number one, and you'll see it in the text. It's very, very clear in the text. Well, not the language, but the concept. Stop thinking like an American individualist. Jesus says, I will build my church. We've learned that the church is the household of God. It is the family of God. It is the body of Christ, as we learn in this text and in others. But here's where you see this in verse 1, okay? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, after all of this, pan- this panorama of the mercies of God, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, he's speaking to them all individually here, by the mercies of God, or because of all of these things, to present your bodies. He's telling them individually, each one of you has a responsibility to present your bodies. Now watch as a living sacrifice, while individually you present your bodies. You're the body of Christ. 
Christ is the preeminent living sacrifice. And no, you're not an American individualist. You are a body that functions as a living sacrifice. And, and the whole of this section, in fact, the whole of every applicatory section in the New Testament just assumes this. I'll give you some examples in a moment. But, but here, folks, see, people say, but I believe in Jesus as my personal Savior. Okay, I get that. Jesus saves us individually. You don't get into heaven on the coattails of your parents or your grandparents. Absolutely, agreed, I get it. But that's gone so far, I suggest that we replace it with, rather than I believe in Jesus as my personal Savior, by grace, through faith, I am part of the blood-washed church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is what the scriptures teach, okay? Those who say we're added to the church daily, okay? Now, notice, though, how the whole section assumes this. Verse 2 in Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world. We're all in this together. And be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Again, we're all in this together. That by testing you as a body may discern what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. There is a a corporate expression of this in which we learn from one another about what it is not to let the world push us into its mold, what it is to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, and we see in one another how good the will of God is. That language that's here is, is you discern that the will of God is good as it's tested, as it's worked out in life. Now that assumes one another in the church. And then as you go down to verse 15, well, we actually, earlier you just go to, go to that verses, uh, in, in verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually, members one of another. It's not negating the individualism, but what it's saying is that that, that is part, we are, we are part of a body. And, and even things like verse 15 and verse 16, how do you do this individually? Rejoice with those who rejoice. And people, somebody gets a job promotion, there, there's a profession of faith by a family member. You rejoice with that. We can't do that alone. And weep with those who weep. You go to calling hours or a funeral service to be with a brother or a sister who's lost a loved one. All, all of that just assumes this. And in fact, you go beyond that even to the rest of the, of the New Testament. And you'll see that as well. And, and, and one of the things we learned, I hope you did, from our general secretaries is... You'll notice that biblical, biblical governed churches are not independent. Uh, in, in home missions, probably didn't hear it as much there, but, but in home missions, we work with other home missionaries and church planters, and we learn from others who are doing that work. We're not independent in that regard or any other. Diaconal ministries, you work with other churches around the world. We can't do it all. And so you help out with others. In, in, in Christian education, why? There's a synergy of the local teachers, Great Commission publications, those who teach the teachers. Again, that all assumes a body. We're in foreign missions working with different churches around the world. So, so this, I mean, this is just shot through 
the whole of the New Testament. So um, anyway, that, that's the, so that's the mind, okay? We, we function, we're not, don't think like individualists. Can you say, I'm a part of the haven? This is how the haven functions. We're not the only church, but this is the way we do things here, what we do, and I'm a part of it. That's the idea, okay? So that's number one. Number two, so you see Christ in this, the living sacrifice. This is his mind. What about his hands and feet? Well, we go to exalted service, as we learned last month about the diaconate, using the gifts God has given you. That's the second part of church life. Individually, you use the gifts that God has given you, verse 6 and through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, now the gift of prophecy does not apply today, um, you could, I guess, replace this with preaching. But prophecy at that time was the giving of the Word of God by special revelation. And that's why the text says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, your conviction that it is God speaking through you. But that <laughs> develop that would be for another day. Um, but as you go on in the gifts, notice there's word and deed gifts. Here's deed. If deaconing, if service, then use the gifts in serving others. The one who teaches, use that gift by teaching others. The one who exhorts or encourages, use that gift by exhorting or encouraging another. The one who contributes in generosity, contributes, is opening up from your largesse in order to help others, to share with others. The one who leads, with zeal, lead is stand before others. It's a term used for a father or for a husband to stand before others, doing it with zeal. And then the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, with, with, uh, with specific kinds of diaconal work in mind. Now, those all prick the conscience, don't they? Serving. Serve others. Do you get tired? Absolutely. Do you need a break? You do. But at times you just say, Lord, I get tired of serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. Well, there's fun doing it, but it can get laborious because it is a lot of work to do it well. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. Sometimes you just don't want to talk to anybody at all, even though, even though you should be doing that. The one who contributes in generosity and will say to ourselves, but Lord, I have obligations too, and we do, but still to give generously, the one who leads with zeal. This is one that especially affects a pastor because you're to stand before people always with a, with a jealousy of God, that the life of God be represented in it, and it's easy to just get wiped out. And the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, because again, we'll say, Lord, Again, I have to show acts of mercy. Again, yes, why? Because this is Christ, folks. This is a Christ-given service and way of serving others. It's the exalted use of grace. And, and what's, see, you look at this and you think, but Lord, this is demanding, and it is. But let me prick your conscience as I prick mine. Everybody's given gifts. Not, not just Christians are able to teach, not just Christians serve others, not just Christians speak to others. Everybody's given gifts. 
outside of Christ, your gifts will be used for your own destruction. You will waste what God has given you to be used for Christ's glory. And so to stop and think, Lord, my voice could have been used for the praise of what was wicked. My hands could be used for doing those things that destroy myself and others. But you redeemed them. And like Christ's service, both in word and deed and everything, I have the privilege with the gifts God has given me to represent him. So in church life, it is exalted service. Don't be an individualist. Use the gifts God has given you. Okay, and then number three, this is the heart of it all, folks. Okay, and so there's a lot of words, but they're all important. The heart, wise, humble, thoughtful, careful, observable love. Wise, walking in the fear of God. You can, we can make big mistakes thinking that we are loving others when we're not helping them. The famous book, When Helping Hurts. Okay, We're talking about wise, humble, thoughtful, not being spastic, careful, observable love. And that begins at verse 9. We could go through the whole section, but just look at verses 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. You're always, always, not always checking your motives, but Lord, I want to be pure in my love for others, sincere in the love for others. How does that come? Because Christ loves them, and Christ loves me. Okay, let love be without hypocrisy. And then notice how love is first to God and then to others. Abhor what is evil. Cling to, hold fast to what is good. It's, again, the language of union, as in your union with Christ. Hate, abhor what's evil. Cling to, hold fast to what is good. And now now to others, okay? Love one another with brotherly affection. You can't do that as an individualist. Now, love one another with brotherly affection. And incidentally, just a political note. Among, among conservatives, uh, Ian Rand, different ways to pronounce her first name, um, who was an atheist. Ian Rand is regarded as kind of a, a, a patron saint. And her books are really are, are quite interesting, long, laborious, but they're interesting. But don't buy that as Christianity. And because Ian Rand was a consummate individualist, and she was not favorable toward any kind of charity toward those who are weak. So in that sense, vehemently even anti-Christian. But anyway, so let love one another with brotherly affection, treating them as you treat yourself. And then notice how, how wise, humble, thoughtful, careful, observable love goes on here. Outdo one another in showing honor. We so need that in our culture. Another account last night of another policeman off-duty shot in the head in critical condition. See, rampant, rampant individualism. In the Christian church, whether it's a male, whether it's a female, whether it's rich, whether it's poor, whether it's a policeman, whether it's a homeless person, you outdo one another in showing honor to others. It's not gun control legislation that's going to stop this, folks. 
It's heart control legislation. All right? And so in the church, there's the language of, of love. Don't be slothful in zeal, but I love it. Be boiling. Be fervent in spirit. Why does it, why does it say that be boiling in spirit? Boiling water affects what's around it. It puts, it puts smells into the air, and it puts moisture into the air, and fervor in spirit has a way of, of permeating the whole body itself and what's done, not being lazy, which brings the whole body down, but fervent in spirit. And it's actually, this is the heart of it again, serving the Lord. This, this is the heart. You're serving Christ when you do these things. Laborers are told to work heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. And how these work together, rejoicing in hope. Why? you got brothers and sisters and they feel downright hopeless. And as you come together, the fact that, you are, that your God has given you a special baptism of confidence in God's promises and you're rejoicing in them helps with others. Being patient in tribulation and even helping others as they're going through it with gentle exhortations and encouragements. Being constant, I love it, being wed to prayer. And why? Because needs of the brothers and sisters, of your region, of the nation, of the world. How can you not be constant in prayer? You're wed to it and as, as in, in marriage. There's a constant communication with your spouse. So in marriage, you live before the throne of grace. We're going to learn about Queen Vashti. And Queen Vashti got a very bad name and a very bad outcome uh, because she went to the king when she wasn't bidden to come to him. And thank the Lord, we have a king who says, no, 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 you don't have to bid you to come to me all the time. I have office hours. It's beautiful. Okay, so, so being, I love the phrase, be wed to prayer. And here again, contributing, sharing with the needs of saints. Uh, because why? They're your brothers. They're your sisters in Christ. And you know how families help one another. So your spiritual family, you help. And then, I don't know why it says seek to show hospitality. I have to write the writers of the year. The word is to pursue Love for strangers. And we have a culture that increasingly hates the stranger from another country, from another class, from another color. And the church is just the opposite. You're always pursuing love for those who are regarded as the outsiders. Okay, so that's just some. I mean, you could go through other parts in here, but I'm just whetting your appetite. Remember, little nuggets of gold. This is a big vein of them when we talk about wise, humble, thoughtful, careful, observable love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a fascinating individual, Bonhoeffer was brilliant. He was uh, obviously German, was brought up in a very liberal a doctrinal background in Germany. And he came to study at Union Theological Seminary. If you really want a place where you will get no exposure to historic Christianity other than to belittle it, Union Seminary is the place to go. And so Bonhoeffer comes to the United States, goes to Union Seminary, and in God's providence, this would have been in the 30s, I guess it was, he um, 1930s, he, he um, ends up going to a black Baptist church in Harlem. And for the first time, he hears the gospel preached with real power. 
And he sees the love of Christ worked out in the congregation. And he sees, as it were, the wedding of Paul and James. Bonhoeffer had Paul down pretty well when it came to justification. But seeing it worked out in life, and it's probably where Bonhoeffer was converted, was seeing that. He goes back to Germany, uh, eventually is imprisoned because he was part of the resistance to Adolf Hitler, and ends up being uh, being uh, being lynched, being hung, just I think a couple weeks before Hitler's own death. It's quite a remarkable story. Um, but his book, Life Together, Bonhoeffer has, in my opinion, probably the most profound statement of of what it is to be worshiping together, to be living together, to be serving together. And in in his chapter on ministry, he or and service actually, he talks about listen and he, he uses mostly these texts, and he does it so well. The ministry of holding one's tongue. Wow. As much as lies within you, be at peace with all people. And he begins with this. Let every man be swift to hear. I'll come back to that. Slow to speak and slow to anger. Have you ever thought about that? The ministry of holding your tongue, not saying what would be, excuse the double negative, not unto edification. Uh, Paul will say in these texts we are to be unedifying our brothers and sisters. Bonhoeffer speaks of the ministry of holding one's tongue. The ministry of meekness. Meekness is self-control under pressure. Here, a brother or sister just drives you nuts, <laughs> and yet you're meek as Moses was. And notice it's about Christ, and Bonhoeffer says it's the meekest man in all of the earth. The ministry of listening. This is, and I've got to whet your appetite for a little bit of Bonhoeffer here. I don't get all of my theology from him, but, but, but this you do. The ministry of listening. The first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Just as, here, no, notice how he develops this. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but also lends us his ear. So it is his work that we do for our brother when we learn to listen to him. We're working for God, representing him when we listen to our brother. But he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. And that's biblical. If somebody comes to you and speaks to you from the word of God, you won't listen to them. You bring two or three others. And if you continue to not listen, well, that's it. You're really not listening to God. Uh, he will be, anyway, but he, he can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. He will be doing nothing but prattle in the presence of God. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life 
And in the end, there is nothing left but spiritual chatter and clerical condescension arrayed in pious words. Anyone who thinks that his time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet will eventually have no time for God and his brother, but only for himself and for his own follies. Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been committed to them by him who is himself the great listener and whose work they should share. We should listen with the ears of God in order that we might speak the word of God. Wow. Wow. Okay, so, so the, ministry, the ministry of listening, and, and his other ones, that, and you watch your appetite for the book, ministry of helpfulness, hmm? ministry of bearing, bearing one another's burdens, the ministry of proclamation, and it's all about Christ. But the point here, folks, the church's heart is the heart of Christ, which is giving yourself for the good of others. Years ago, we had a, a man that taught a class in Franklin Square. And I'm sure he quoted others with this because I've read it since. But, boy, it was like lightning bolt when he said in the middle of the class, you know, the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. God forbid that should be the case. The heart of all this, and that's why the bulk of this material even is about observable love. Again, all the, the terms for it. Wise, humble, thoughtful, careful, observable love. Let me do the other two rather quickly here. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Now you should be in the section. Anyway, Romans chapter 13. And remember you're starting at page 1126. And you'll find Romans 13 embedded in there. These last two of the five points are uh, very quick. This is the will of Christ, who came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him, who was always in submission to his Father. Christian living in the church means being obedient citizens whose primary allegiance is to God. And folks, this, this you could take weeks to work through what this means in Romans 13. Obedient citizens whose primary allegiance is to God. And you see this in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In the early church, this was the dilemma for Rome. The Roman Empire grew to hate Christians because of their passionate love for God, who was greater than Caesar. But they had to admit that the Christians were their best citizens. They had marriages that stayed together. They worked with their children. They took care of the poor. They were those who had observable love, among others. They were respectful of the authorities. They blessed and didn't curse. And they didn't know what to do with this. But eventually, it was because the Christians were what they were as citizens that the Roman Empire was kept from completely dissolving 
And there was at least a begrudging acknowledgement there was something very different about these followers of the Nazarene, okay? And, and so that's what's, what's in view here. And then the way that comes is you, you show subjection to God by respect for those in authority. That's, that's true, okay? There's no authority except from God. You want a piercing text, at least for me, where I struggle very much with attitudes toward authorities in government. In Jude, Jude writes about those who cavil, who rail against authorities. And he says, even the archangel Michael did not bring a railing accusation against the devil, but rather said, the Lord rebuke you. Wow, that's powerful. There was even by an archangel, the highest of the angels, there was still respect for the fact that this fallen angel had certain authority. He did call for the Lord to rebuke him. But folks, we've got to grow. There's such polarization in our culture. And so there must be, even when you differ with authorities, and God knows I do so often, if any of you know me, but you still have respect for those. who. But how do you do that? You see God over all of it, right? There's no authority except for God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And they're God's ministers. Verse 4, he's God's servant for your good. He's supposed to be. Anyway, that's the ideal. And incidentally, over time, if they're not God's servants for good, they won't be around. They'll stop that. The Lord will deal with that. Therefore, you must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So you see God above all of it. Now, at the same time, and this is not the topic, we were talking about subjection to authority, that's what's in view. We're not talking about disobedience to authority, that's not here. The norm is subjection. The Bible does say you ought to obey God rather than man. And increasingly as state becomes what in the book of Revelation you read as the beast, which was the state, was the Roman Empire, it will become more and more difficult to know when you are to obey God, but not obey man. And that's why we're all in this thing together, this language. Yes, every person, each of us individually. But we work at this thing together in knowing how to deal with these issues. And that comes, you know, it's not, the, you, make, you make an appeal. You always make an appeal to those in authority. We're working with the town of Smithtown. Oh God, thank you for meekness, self-control under pressure. But, but you work with the authorities as far as you can. At the end of the day, if you have to disobey God, in order to obey man, you obey God, regardless of the consequences. Okay? So again, the norm is subjection to authority. This, this came up and was in China back in 2002. And uh, we had lunch with the Communist Party officials that were there. And it was very, very interesting. It was fascinating. But, and they admitted. They said, we need Christians in our area. And essentially they said, because we don't have a moral base with our with our 
they didn't say communism, but with our, with our philosophy of life or whatever term they used or whatever. And we had to say, yes, Christians will make the best citizens, but their first citizenship is not the state. The first citizenship is heaven. They didn't like that, incidentally. Notice we weren't invited back, but 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 that's true. That's really what you're getting at. Okay, so in so in and you need this together. When when do you disobey? You work together with brothers and sisters on this issue. Otherwise, you have a fragmented witness. But the norm, you respect the authorities over you. And then the last of the five points is this: if 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 this is Christ's will, okay, the 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 Christ willed, he was obedient to his Father. Christ's eyes, Christ had his eyes, folks, on the last day for the joy set before him, which was heaven. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and was set down at the right hand of God. And you can't read the Gospels without learning that Christ's eyes were fixed on eternity and glory. That's the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why poor in spirit? Because the kingdom of this world parches your thirst. It doesn't satisfy your stomach, but you have the kingdom of heaven before you. Blessed are those who mourn, and that mourning will continue this side of heaven but they will be comforted. See, Jesus, even in the Beatitudes, he's always looking ahead. There's little little rays that the Lord gives of these blessings here, the full sunshine of it in glory. And here's where you see that, again, embedded in this text. Look at Romans, Romans chapter 13 and verses 11 through 14. Right in the middle of this, these are the eyes of the community of God's people. Besides this, Besides all, he says, we talk about love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He's speaking about love. He's besides this. Alongside of it, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. There's an important evangelistic message today. With all of your frivolity, you're asleep to the fact that the Lord's going to come in judgment. And Paul says to the community, to the church, don't you be asleep with respect to this. For salvation, and by this he's speaking of the fullness of salvation and glory, is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Each Lord's Day, one Sabbath, closer to the everlasting Sabbath. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And you say, well, how is that can be the case? Basically, if you think of heaven as having announcements of the great events in history, toward the end of the list, you've got Christ's coming, Christmas, Christ's death, Good Friday, Christ's resurrection, Easter Sunday, Pentecost, the sending of the Spirit on the church, you know what the next one is on the list? Christ returns. And it may seem long to us, but that's to God. And that's, that's what he's getting at here. The night is far gone, the day's at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness 
and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, going all the way back to the previous reminders about love to God and others. Why do you live a holy life? Why are you so different? Why will your family be alienated from you at times? Because you just don't ride on their tracks. It's because you don't want to be destroyed at the last day. That's why. And that, brothers and sisters, in a loving, gracious way, must really permeate our evangelism. But I'm just not interested in God. You better be. Because one day you're going to stand before him as your judge. But I don't want to be confined to religion. You better. Because if you're not now yoked to Christ, whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light, you'll have the yoke of wickedness on you for all eternity. And don't say that with anger. Pray that the Lord give you some tears. See, again, this is the community. What is, what is, this is countercultural, folks. No, we're not looking first to this age. It's not exactly, um, this world is not my own. I'm just a passing through. Because you're doing more than passing through. I mean, you're a fragrance of Christ and, and you're concerned for others. But you get the point. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. I've got my eyes always, well, the theme of worship today, heaven. And eternity, okay? So, just to pique your thoughts about what it is to be a church, I guess if you want to, uh, if you want to summarize that last point, people with an eye on the last day, do you live every day as if it's your last day? You know why you should? Because today may be your last day. And those stark realities that there's a, there's a body in the world that represents Christ, that the service of Christ is to be represented in that body, that the love of Christ is to be represented in that body, that the submission of Christ is to be represented in that body, and that the future hope and confidence of Christ might be represented in the body. That's church life for dummies, folks. Or if you want the five points of living together as a church. It's all, it's all here. And it's, it's everywhere else in the New Testament. There you go. This is to goad you now and encourage you to read your New Testament. Let's summarize it this way, okay? Because it is about Christ, and you see it throughout this text. Look at, you got your Bibles open, I hope, Romans 13 and verse 14. After saying, don't live like the world, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Dress yourself in the grace of God in Christ every day, okay? And and uh, put on Christ, Lord, I rest in your righteousness. I rest in your forgiveness. I rest in your lordship. I rest in your love. I, I, it's like saying, Lord, uh, as, as, the, as the earth, 
I will revolve around you as the sun, uh, but even as we only see one face of the moon all the time, uh, that, that circling of you will never be apart from your light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and human responsibility. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And then notice for chapter 14 and verses 7 through 9. For none of us, at the heart of this, none of us lives to himself. See, that's, don't be an American individualist, right? None of us lives to himself. And none of us dies to himself. Which is a horror of suicide. The ultimate selfish act. You don't, you don't die to yourself. You die and bring many, many others into your sad wake. No one lives to us as a message for the euthanasia culture, which is not good death. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's for this end. Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both the dead and of the living. And church life is Christ as Lord, because Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. And it all comes together at the end of chapter 15 and verses 5 through 7. It's all here. May the God of endurance, which means perseverance through the difficulties of life, and encouragement. He has his ways of encouraging us moment by moment. May the God, for, may the God of endurance and encouragement, because he speaks of the need of endurance of encouragement, and he says it comes from God, grant you to live in such harmony with one another. In other words, the word is to be thinking about one another. So it's as if you could almost reflexively think what your brother and sister thinks. Live in such one-mindedness, is the word, with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that here it is, together. No American individualism, that together. You may... Not with a thousand voices, but with one voice. Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to glorify and enjoy him. Therefore, he goes, this is it, he says. You know what the gospel's about? Welcome. Jesus has come. Come unto me. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ, as John Bunyan put it. Therefore, welcome one another. Receive one another. No clicks, folks. No tribal groups within the church. No factions. And receive one another, just as Christ has welcomed or received you. And don't miss it. It's all for the glory of God. That's what the church is about. So, there it is, brothers and sisters. Church life for dummies. Or if you want, <laughs> the five points of living together. May God grant the Holy Spirit to us that we embody what is written and what is shown in Jesus. And now, our Lord, we thank you for this compendium of things. Lord, what a feast. We can go home this afternoon and read these texts and the others, and these things will pop out at us because they really are the sum and substance of what it is to be Christ's mind in the world, Christ's hands and feet in the world, Christ's heart in the world, Christ's will in the world, Christ's eyes in the world. So, Lord, may we, in the fullest sense of the word, put on 
the Lord Jesus Christ and make absolutely no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And when it comes to one another, male, female, rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, may we welcome one another, reflecting Jesus who welcomed us to the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Amen.